You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for joining us today. I had a excellent conversation with a man named Ouroboros, and that's what he prefers to go by. That's the alias that he uses for um, his mental health advocacy work. And very interesting conversation. Ouroboros is currently a psychiatric nursing technician in the state of California, meaning that he plays an integral part in an interdisciplinary team of nurses, doctors, technicians, and therapists to provide treatment to patients suffering from mental health issues. He also holds specialized certifications in addiction counseling and peer counseling. In this episode, he shares his own story, as well as some of his experiences in the mental health field, especially as it pertains to addiction treatment. So we spend a lot of time in this episode discussing schizoaffective disorder with the bipolar subtype, which is the primary diagnosis that Ouroboros lives with, but we also spend a lot of time talking about addiction treatment and recovery. So it's a very broad spanning episode with a lot of great information from a true person working in the mental health field. Quick heads up before we get started, there is some discussion about child abuse toward the beginning of this episode. It's nothing too graphic, but it may be disturbing to some listeners, so I just wanted to put that warning out in advance. As always, if this is something that you're uncomfortable with hearing about, you may want to sit out on this episode, or you may want to skip forward to the second half of the episode. And with that, Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Today I am joined by Aura Boros, who is an individual who I met through Twitter and who expressed interest in coming on the show. Very honored to have him on. I'm sure it'll be an interesting conversation. So Ouroboros, I wanted to just start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your formal diagnosis um, or comorbid diagnoses, if you'd like to. Sure. So it started as a child that was diagnosed with ADHD, attention, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And over time, I was in an abusive domestic um thing with my family. My stepdad was very aggressively physically abusive with me and very um, unnice to me. So his physical abuse took on another level where he would drag me by my shirt, toss me in the bathroom, turn off the power for the bathroom, hold the door, and would make monster sounds. Eventually, he said that he was not home, and I kept hearing those monster sounds. So I started, I guess, um, maturing the schizoaffective component in that, in that age. And I've always been paranoid. I've always felt like I am destined for something, like 
supernatural wise. Mm-hmm. And then in 2012, I got diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type because I can't stay still. My mood swings are very fast. And over time, they also found that I have PTSD due to the trauma I lived through, nectophobia or the fear of darkness because of my stepdad's abuse. Uh, social anxiety can be in crowds because I feel agitated, claustrophobic in a sense. And lastly, uh, during high school years, I weighed 400 pounds and I developed an eating disorder. Wow. I, I'm so sorry, first of all, to hear about that childhood trauma that you went through. I know that's not easy subject matter to talk about, but I, I would just like to thank you for sharing that uh, with myself and with the audience. Uh, my, my heart really goes out to you. Um, so regarding schizoaffective disorder, it sounds like there were certainly some environmental causes that impacted the progression of that, like you were saying, continuing to hear these monster sounds even after your stepfather had left the house. Um, Now, schizoaffective disorder is categorized in the DSM-5 within the same section that schizophrenia is. But just like you said, there's a bipolar subtype. So with the bipolar subtype, I'm just going to pull up my little DSM-5 desk reference for the audience. So the bipolar subtype of schizoaffective disorder is phrased as, this subtype applies if a manic episode is part of the presentation. Major depressive episodes may also occur. So I wanted to ask you if you could maybe describe a little bit more about what that manic component is like within your personal um, diagnosis and the symptoms that you experience. Okay, so with schizoaffective bipolar type, I, with the psychotic disorder or the psychosis or pretty much the, the psychotic features that it, com- that it comprises of, the bipolar component, it makes me like super hypervigilant, very high, highly uh, energetic, I walk for miles. Usually when I'm in a psychosis state, my body is filled with so much energy that nothing can face me, no fatigue. And I feel like I'm I'm on, on a biggest high, you can say, but it's just the, the symptoms. But for example, I would say like, when my voice is sucking in, my delusional state um, starts, or even when I'm paranoid that I'm, my life is in danger, I can walk for miles and hours without nonstop no food or water. I, I can go out for two, three days without eating or even drinking water. Oh my um, yeah, <laughs> so it gets very uh, overwhelming, but over time my body adjusts. It's like you're happy. It's like you're on adrenaline rush like 24 seven. You don't drop until you feel like you didn't accomplish something. That's when I hit my plateau of the depressive state. And when I hit low, I hit super low to the point where I get suicidal ideation. Wow. So when you're experiencing psychosis, um, do you have delusions and hallucinations or just delusions or just hallucinations? What does a psychotic episode kind of look like for you? Uh, Currently, as we speak, even with the medication I'm being prescribed and the therapeutic um, uh, interventions I'm going through, I still hear whispers, but my hallucinations are auditory. Okay. as well as tactile and sometimes 
even um, visual. So I hear snakes. Like Harry, uh, to put it in the simplest terms, Harry Potter. <laughs> I wow. talk to snakes. Okay. Wow. That's, that's wild. Um, I, so I have bipolar type one with psychotic features. So I've experienced hallucinations and delusions as well. Of course, um, only during manic episodes and major depressive episodes, but my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that with schizoaffective disorder, the hallucinations and delusions can occur even when you're not actively experiencing a mood episode. Is that the case for you? Well, the thing is also, you're not uh, wrong at all. You're right. Um, it, can, it can inhibit, so it's mainly my psychotic with mood disorder versus yours is mood disorder with psychotic. But mine, I'm always in a mood. I'm always either happy, angry, sad, or any other emotion in between those. I, I flip the switch. But my hallucinations um, pretty much give birth to delusions. They talk to me into having this powerful destiny or this birthright or this um, incredible journey I'm supposed to take. And eventually the delusion becomes, like, for example, I'm the only one that sees these things. I'm the only one that can save these people. I am. I am. Because I'm the only one seeing this and no one else is. That's why I know it's a delusion. Then I get paranoid because I feel like I have so much knowledge and secret that, you know, organizations and governments and whatnot are after me because I know so much, but it's not the case. It's just me going through my psychosis. And then that's where my manic and depressive space uh, circulating cycle each other out. That's where, so they, so my psychosis inspires my mood disorder. <laughs> okay. I hear what you're saying. And that sounds familiar to me to an extent. Um, I, I can kind of relate to what you're saying about those delusion, delusions of grandeur, um, things of that nature. And then, of course, the, the paranoia, the anxiety, um, all of that that comes along with a severe psychotic episode. Um, I, I'm very uh, sorry to, to hear that that's happened. Um, but I wanted to ask you if you're comfortable with sharing this, um, would you mind talking a little bit about the medications you're on or any therapy that you do that you've found helpful? Yes, so as I mentioned on my, uh, my diagnoses, uh, the medications that work for me, it, it could work for others or it could not, but for myself, I take Seroquel or Quetapine. Uh, it's an antipsychotic until you hit 600 milligrams and over. Otherwise, it's just a sedation, uh, medication for sedation. But I take 600 milligrams to control my psychotic features. I also take lithium, 1,200 milligrams. It is known to help bipolar disorder. It, it works for me. Work, it does work for others or not. But for me, that's lithium. And then I take Wellbutrin in the morning, which is 450 milligrams, supposed to help my depressive state, uh, smoking cessation, and help with some components of my ADHD and also helps with appetite as well. And then I take Stratera, which is mainly for ADHD. Okay. So you're, you feel like that's an effective cocktail for you for the most part? I know you said you still hear uh, whispers sometimes, but overall you think those medications have helped? For me, they work. Uh, the whispers to me I, are to be ongoing. So I accepted that fact. Yeah. I accepted that they're, 
I'm going to hear them all the time, but I'd rather hear whispers than them talking to me. Wow. So do you, uh, do you do any type of uh, therapy as well? Like do you do CBT or um, talk therapy or anything of that nature? Yes, I do individualized therapy with my therapist. Um, psychotherapy is a, a must because it helps me with integrating myself back into a lot living. Um, CBT is helpful too. Um, and also mindfulness exercises. My therapist had me doing journaling works too. And some activity that is creative, not just like just going to the gym and working out. But my therapist always says that I need something that works my mind and my body at the same time. So usually I do dancing or Tai Chi. Very cool. How did you get into dancing and Tai Chi? Dancing? Um, I don't know if you ever heard of industrial dance or dark EVM. It's like uh, a German. Yes, I have. <laughs> oh, good. So that's what I do. <laughs> very cool. Awesome. So, so that must be a very energetic kind of outlet. Yeah, because the music sometimes can be, you know, very upbeat or aggressive and you can just let all your energy out. I can dance for two, three hours on stuff. I like the I like the music. The music's very high energy. Uh, it keeps you moving and it releases really a lot of stress. Do you have a particular artist who you're really into when it comes to that kind of music that you like to dance to? Yeah, I love I love Kombi Christ, original uh, uh, EBM industrial uh, artist. But I also like uh, one of the artists for his philosophy. It's known as the artist is called VNV Nation, Victory Not Vengeance. Okay. They have a lot of good, good music and a lot of good songs. Very inspiring, very philosophical. And it, some of the one song that really captivated me was Illusion that he sings. It is very powerful. That's awesome. I'll uh, look that up after this episode and I'll include that in the episode description so people can check that out if they like to. And then on the other hand, you have Tai Chi, which is slower, more meditative, typically. Um, so you kind of have both ends of that spectrum for, for those physical outlets. Uh, how much is Tai Chi helping you? It's helping me to relax uh, and helps me, help, helping me stay patient because I'm always, you know, on the go. I, I, I do things fast. I don't slow down because it actually helps me be mindful of myself also to take care of myself and the movements i feel like i'm a ninja sometimes when i do some of the moves i love naruto so i feel like i need to touch me <laughs> that's awesome very cool so can we talk a little bit about what you do for your um your day job at this point in the recording, we transition to talking a bit more about Ouroboros' current position as a psychiatric nursing technician in the state of California. He also discusses his experience with addiction counseling. I work with addiction and, and mental health as well. I work usually in inpatient and outpatient, um, mainly uh, my specialty is always addiction because, um, you know, when it's outpatient, it's usually the main idea or detoxes. But I've worked in also in psych units and mental health facilities or crisis units as well. It, I can, I, I've worked at low functioning psych units, and trust me, it is exactly how you how you how you say it. It's a lot of chaos, so that's why I like working with people with 
they're a little more high functioning. I feel so bad when I saw such units. They're more aggressive with people. I cannot do that. Okay. I don't have too much of a heart. So that's why I start working with outpatient. Um, I'm trying to get into county-based work uh, facilities, but they have to, you know, you have to pass up uh, budget backgrounds and and clearances. So right now, I'm working at a detox center and also an outpatient. And certainly you have lived experience of your own with mental health conditions. How has that impacted the way that you interact with patients in those settings? Has it helped inform you? Do you find it easier to relate to them? It helps me do my job better um, because from personal experience, I can offer them also hope. Because most of the times when you hear about schizophrenia, schizoaffective or bipolar, there's a huge stigma that we're meant to be in psych units, we're crazy, we're doing all these shenanigans. But in reality, people like us, like you and me, we can be successful, we can be normal people of society, we can fit in, we can you know, live with this disorder and not cause man- like mania or destruction or chaos that people think we can do or we're, we're meant to do. That's why like, I tell my patients, like, look, I know what you're going through. I'm very, I, I open up to them. Hey, I have the same disorder. You're not damned. You just need to work hard for it. And I feel like I inspire. I hopefully I do. That must be so meaningful. I, I mean, I've been in inpatient treatment before myself. And when I was there, I felt like none of the nurses or doctors could really relate. So for you to be able to have that connection with the individuals who you're helping treat, that must be massive for them. Do, do you find that they open up a lot more after that? Yeah, especially because I don't treat them like, a, like most of the facilities are private insurance, so they're all dollar bills to CEOs and everything, right? For mm-hmm. me, they're people. I see them as people. I'm, I tell them, like, look, I don't care if I'm, only, if I'm only supposed to see you for an hour. I don't care if we're here for two, three hours, and I don't want to get paid for the hour. I'd rather do that time for you and know you're taken care of than me make that money that people are just meant to. Like some nurses, you know, I'll talk from, from my field, there's good and bad nurses. There's nurses who, are, who want to help and nurses who just want to make money. I'm the kind of nurse that, that likes helping people. That's phenomenal. Do your um, coworkers, the other nurses or doctors who you work with, have you disclosed your conditions to them as well? Um, I'm very open. I don't, I don't promote it, but if I'm asked, I'm sure. not going to lie about it. I'm very um, comfortable. Um, now that I was before to disclose about my mental illness, like it's some people take it differently and some people still think their own ways. And I just accept it to accept them for what they are. They accept me. And then I mean, in all respects, I always ask for mutual respect and that's it. Like you don't, you don't want to, no one wants to understand it or give it a chance. That's fine. Just keep your side of the lane and let me keep my side of my lane. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. What are the most positive outcomes you've seen with being very open with your diagnosis within a professional capacity? I know for myself personally, at my day job, I keep my mental uh, illness, my mental disorder, very, very quiet. I don't share it with people. You know, maybe sometimes I'll disclose to someone, you know, hey, I, I do live with an ADA recognized disability but I don't really go into further detail than that. So 
I'm curious in your own situation with your personal approach that you've decided to take, what, what have been some of the most positive outcomes from that? Oh, uh, the positive outcomes, they, we have a, a variety of different clientele. We have clients who are addiction-based. We have clients that are, have psychotic features, that have mood disorders, have depression, have anxiety. So normally when I disclose my, my own disorders, they usually designated me as their nursing care manager of specific clients, like uh, specifically those with psychotic features, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, bipolar, with psychotic features, any, any uh, base clients, depending on how high or low they are, I always get them as my patients. And I even developed a, a group therapy um, kind of uh, intervention for them that is produced through frequency sounds where I, I test run it to see if it works and actually some frequencies then mostly annoys people don't annoy us. Mm-hmm. We, we, we can literally sit through it and be okay. And some of my clients told me that they were able to think for the first time without the voice, that frequency helped. So some of them found it very therapeutic. That's fascinating. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Are you talking about like listening to like, an, like a note from a keyboard at a certain frequency that people find relaxing. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I'm not too familiar with that. Sure. So the frequency I'm talking about, I started using it in an app. Like, have you ever had that sound? Like, like a little chime that like, certain times you hear it and it's so, so um, not loud, but it's really high pitched that you just hear it in one of your ears. Mm-hmm. So one of the apps that I found is called Frequency. It, there's various ones, but there's one specific that's like yellow covered. And I go, I elevate the, the, the frequency to a high pitch where you can actually still hear it. And I noticed that it bothers my, my I did it at home, they bothered everybody but me. So I tried it at work, it bothered all of my coworkers and all of my other people that I work with. And but the only patients that I, the only people that I saw that they that were unaffected were the ones who were diagnosed with a psychotic feature or disorder. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should make a group of this. So I started playing around and I, and I kept, you know, going low and, and high on the frequency. And my clients with those disorders or diagnoses, they were unaffected, but everyone else was. So huh. I started, so when we were having a chat or a group or doing group therapy, I put the, that frequency and they were all able to talk better, disclose information. They didn't have a committee up in their head, like bombarding them. So it was very eye-opening. That, that is just absolutely wild to me. And what an interesting perspective to have that you've actually introduced this in the field, um, quote unquote, with, within that therapeutic environment. Do you know if there, is there a lot of, um, like academic or medical research out there about this yet? Or is this still something that's kind of new as a potential sure. method of therapy? Well, I saw uh, there's, there are some, some theories and some actually um, academic journals that you can read. Um, I only read a few. Uh, it's not really uh, well known yet or very popular because it's a lot of different components that go with it. They have introduced a lot of other uh, traditional methods to document components, but there are some academic journals based on that because our brains work on a certain level of energy and 
like they say, which is faster, sound or light, right? And light is generated through a magnetic pull. And what can interact with that is usually vibrations or frequencies of sound. So imagine how much sound it will take to break a frequency, a barrier of electromagnetism. It could be very little, very high, depending on how strong the level of our own magnetic force will is. So the sound can actually penetrate through the through your neurons or cause your neurons to respond depending on your senses as well. That's so cool. So let me let me ask you this as a follow. Well, so first of all, what would you call this type of intervention? Would you just call it like frequency therapy or something like that? Is there a proper name for it? I I call it uh, uh, sound time. Uh, the uh, sound time group. <laughs> sound time group. Cool. I didn't. Re- I haven't found a real uh, name for it yet. So I'm still working and experimenting and getting all the myths so we can. Uh, I can actually introduce it to other. Um, but one of my jobs is letting me start doing it, but the other one is not. So I'm have to like back it up with a lot of you know research and and evidence based uh, tactics to for them to accept it. What a cool approach. I love that. So my follow-up question for you was, do you, I know you said you like to listen to pretty intense music. Do you also like to listen to ambient music as well? Like meditative, you know, like Brian Eno or like any of those guys that have very tranquil kind of uh, sounds and textures that they incorporate into their music? Yeah, I mean, I also, there is one artist that kind of plays that kind of music and very acoustic, and his voice is very high, but it's like still very mellow. I, the band is called SYML. SYML, yeah. I don't know what it stands for, but his voice is amazing. SYML. Okay, so you said that you do a lot of work with addiction. Do you yourself have any history of substance abuse or is this just something that's important to you and you kind of fell into the field or would you mind sharing a little more about that? Sure. Um, so I do have a history of addiction myself. Okay. So after I, so before I got diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which was in 2012, I still was, a, you can say like a neo, a neo sprite or and you be, I wasn't, I never did any drug or anything or smoked a cigarette or drank alcohol or, or anything like that until after I got my diagnosis. I fell into depression, I fell into peer pressure, and I just wanted to fit in. So, you know, I started with smoking a cigarette after I got diagnosed, and then with alcohol, then weed, and then, it, and then my drug of choice became crystal meth, which wow. apparently, which apparently, you know, it causes like schizoaffective kind of symptomology. Mm-hmm. But to me, it just made me feel focused because of the amphetamine component to the ADHD. It helped my mood, the lithium. Not saying it's, it's healthy at all, but it does help me with some, some of my features and diagnoses. But it did make my schizoaffective component much more mature and, and advanced. That it, it got me to the level of, you know, instantaneously hearing the voices, going to a paranoid state. So yeah, I, I'm right now in recovery. I have about two, three years now, almost three years. Congratulations. Felt, thank you. And it was like, so one thing about addiction, where when you stop and you start again, like many years later, it doesn't start uh, from the beginning. You start well, from where you left off mm-hmm. and it just keeps going. So you never really have that new, that primary or first time kind of spark 
it is very eluding and intoxicating. Um, although crystal meth, when you're coming down, it's not as dangerous as heroin or alcohol or benzodiazepine, but it does make your, your brain chemistry mature in a different level or aspect where it can be very unstable or cause your previous diagnosis to become much more greater than they are. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I'm in recovery too. Um, I, I used to um, abuse alcohol extensively um, to, to use a euphemism. I'll, I'll just say I had a little bit of a raging alcoholism problem. Um, I, I've been abstinent from alcohol for over six years now. Um, I got yeah. sober at, thank you. Um, I, I got sober at a pretty early age. I was like 23 years old at the time. I'm 28 now. Um, I, I wanted to ask, um, how old were you when you started, um, using drugs and, and eventually methamphetamine? So let's see. So the first time I started was when I was 23. Okay. So right, um, right around the time I, I was kind of, uh, kicking that, the, those bad tendencies, that's actually when, when you had started up. And so um, just because I, I'm not good at doing math, uh, so how many years of like active addiction were you in before you were I'll able to get enough. clean? Let's see, so just get, so let's see, 30, I'm almost 30. So it's been like a good 10, 11 years on and off with some sobriety yeah. in between, yeah. Yeah. And what you said earlier about like, um, it's, it's like picking up where you left off and there's never that original spark. That's something that a lot of people who I know in my personal life who have many, many years of, um, addiction recovery under their belts. That's something that I hear a lot. I have been very fortunate to have never relapsed on alcohol, but I've had some close calls and there's like a saying within those circles. You probably know it better than I do, but where, where is it? It's like the, the first drink begins where the last drink ended or something to that effect. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I heard it before. Like it's pretty much, it's a component of like, oh, you know, for a gentleman is uh, they, they can drink whenever they want and stuff or hats are off to them, right? Uh, that's the drinker component and those like us we just don't know when to stop yeah we stop when when we're done when when the substance is done with us was there a particular event when you realized it was time to stop yes i will be very uh uh transparent with this i started with snorting math mm-hmm. and became smoking and then lastly it became iv used wow that was my rough bottom. So you were using uh, the meth intravenously with a needle, just in case there's anyone in, in the audience who, who isn't familiar with that terminology. Um, that's hardcore stuff, dude. Um, I, I've never injected anything. Um, I've heard that that is especially, especially hard to kick. Um, what were some of the first steps that you took to get away from that? Well, um, I'll be honest, like it was first, the first, uh, the beginning part, it was not my call. I wasn't ready to stop yet until I started getting, until I was hospitalized. I passed out 
I was mixing, I was to, uh, um, injecting meth as well as ingesting uh, GHB or gamma hydrochlorobenzetine, which is everybody knows it as the date rape drug. It's very popular in the gay community. Um, we use it for recreational purposes of make, improving, you know, sexual quality, uh, having that uh, endorphin kick and um, inhibitions. Uh, um, uh, sparked up and it helps us be more it's like being drunk and stoned at the same time so yeah you said uh ghb right ghb yeah gamma hydrochloride yeah you know i um it's really interesting that you bring that up uh so when when i was a college student i used a bevy of different substances and um ghb was not one of them that i actively sought out but I believe I actually may have been dosed with GHB um, uh, after a party uh, one night or a party that uh, really was more of a binge that had carried on into the next day. Um, I, someone gave me a shot of something, you know, like a, like a shooter glass of, um, of a clear liquid and told me it was moonshine. And I was like, okay, cool. And um, yeah, I, I remember uh, I drank it and I was like, you know, this really is pretty tasteless for, uh, for quote unquote moonshine, you know, and next thing I knew I, I was blacked out, you know, thank God, you know, like I wasn't assaulted or robbed or anything like that. But the next thing I knew I had woken up and like 12 hours had passed. It was the middle of the night. And I was still fucked up, man. Like, I, I still couldn't walk right. Um, I, like, my friends had to convince me not to get behind the wheel because they were just like, dude, like, you think you're straight, but you're not. Get the fuck back inside. So good looking out from my friends. Um, but that stuff is very scary. Blacking out is, is very scary. Um, there's no doubt about that. So anyhow, just a little bit of my own personal experience there. No, thank you. And you're right. I, I'm glad you had good friends to tell you not to go behind the wheel because although JHP uh, is a very temporary effect, it does leave a residual um, side effect where you still feel like your inhibitions are still kicking, your endorphins are kicking, that adrenaline rush is, is pertaining and it really clouds your judgment as if you were really drunk with booze or you were really stoned out of your mind with uh, THC or CBD. But uh, normally, it's like, how can I put it for, when you use it with meth, it's like chips and dip, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the so winning combination. Much, pretty much. <laughs> so with me, uh, going back to like how I started to stop, I did too much of it. Not too much JHP because ideally I was trying to end my life. Mm-hmm. And I, because I felt like I was hitting rock bottom, I'm like, wow, I'm educated. I have a license and look at me, I'm doing all this stupid stuff. And it came to a point where I just wanted to end it. And luckily, I was in the city of Orange when this happened. I was running around, I was very euphoric, and then I literally just dropped. I woke up in the ER a day and a half later of being knocked out. And um, I only remember is that they, I looked at my dogs because they, they were there, all my needles, 
all of my stash was gone. And that's when I'm like, okay, I'm not controlled anymore. I, I'm, I found out what, what day it was, and I was like, okay, I guess the higher power, whatever it is, wants me to stop, so let's give it a go. Yeah, it's just like, this is it. Like, it, it's gone too far. Um, I'm right. very, I'm obviously so happy to hear that you survived that and that you were able to get into some treatment programs and, and now have some sustained sobriety under your belt. Uh, like I said before, you know, just um, mad respect to you for that. Congratulations for that. Are you, um, you. Do, do you participate in like 12 step programs or um, like smart recovery or anything like that? So I, when I fell into addiction, I did the, the substance abuse gig, you know, the 12 steps and it kept me sober for, for it only works, and this is something for my sense. I'm not saying this is for everybody, but for me, uh, it worked for a little bit, but it didn't really suffice when I, the first time when I did it, after the first time I became an addict and I was going back to recovery, then when I relapsed and went back to recovery again, I tried the mental health approach. I took care of my mental illness first and then went through the cycle to help my addiction component, which was much more beneficial because Originally, I wasn't an addict that produced mental illness from a substance. I was originally mentally ill and that went into self-medicating components where it led me to addiction. So some people, what I've learned in my field of work is that if you use substance abuse, you'll end up with mental health because it, it creates a lot of brain chemistry imbalances. Mm-hmm. Or if your mental health and try to self-medicate without a prescriber or provider uh, taking care of you, and you're just plain doctor, it will let you into addiction due to the fact of self-medicating, which ultimately, again, it will end up you dissolving your mental health. So mental health, um, it is the first thing you need to take care of before anything. Interesting. Yeah, um, on my own uh, journey toward recovery um, and harm reduction, I, I actually, I first had to get sober from, from alcohol and and everything else at that time, because like what I was finding is, um, psychiatrists who I met with, you know, um, this was after I had been hospitalized for a manic episode. And I found that psychiatrists who I was referred to kept telling me to get the addiction under control, or they wouldn't work with me. Um, that was one of the reasons why I had to, you know, quit drinking and stuff. Um, and then just shortly after that, after I had a clearer mind for a few weeks, I finally went back and sought out proper psychiatric treatment for bipolar disorder. Um, but it's interesting to hear your alternate perspective, too. I, I think that's um, very interesting stuff. And I definitely appreciate you sharing that. I did want to ask you, um, especially in the state of California, you probably already know where I'm going with this, but how do you feel about marijuana use, either on a personal level or on like a general level um, for people who are living with mental illness and or addiction tendencies? I have for me, I have no issues or problems with people using it. Um, 
I noticed that when I used it, I became much more severely symptomatic. So I I did some studies. I read a lot of academic journals, and there is a huge study that with anybody, if they have depression, anxiety, or even bipolar disorder, they're okay to do um, THC or CBD, but those with a psychotic feature or disorder based, CBD or THC will definitely make the symptoms much more severe and also much more longer lasting or permanent. Right. From what I read. And my advice is if you have, if you don't know if you have a psychotic disorder, please go get diagnosed first before doing marijuana. Or if you already have the diagnosis, please stay away from it. (laughs) Yeah. I, Hey, I completely respect where you're, where you're coming from with that. Um, That echoes what, some doctors have told me throughout my own course of treatment over the years. Um, it's a very controversial topic within the bipolar community right now. You know, I know some people who they have diagnosed bipolar disorder and it's like if they take a, a single puff from a joint or like a single hit of a bowl, it makes them spiral out. And I've seen it happen like in person in real time, as I'm sure you may have as well, where I'll be talking to someone, everything's cool. Um, you know, they, they suggest, you know, do you want to smoke some weed? And then that's what happens. And like, I, I have seen people go from being stable at baseline, having normal conversations to just doing like a single hit of marijuana and being like off the rails all of a sudden. And it's, it's scary. So I've certainly seen uh, some people who have that reaction. Uh, for me personally, I, I'm taking a break from marijuana right now. I've uh, been taking a break for the last couple of months, um, but I do use it um, on you know, a semi-regular basis. I find it helps with anxiety, appetite, helps a little bit with sleep, but I've also read that it technically disrupts deeper sleep cycles. Um, but I, uh, I've been able to use it with generally good results, controllable results. And, and again, speaking purely from my personal perspective, um, I found it to be a pretty good harm reduction tool. Um, but that's just for me personally. Um, I, I know it's a controversial topic, there's conflicted research that I've read, but um, from what I've seen through um, the research that I've done, it, it does tend toward doctors recommending that people with psychotic disorders, such as bipolar type one with psychosis or schizoaffective disorder, or schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera, um, should generally stay away from it. So that's, that's a topic that actually comes up a lot um, on the Bipolar Recorder podcast. We, we have a lot of people come on and share their perspectives on that. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to any of the previous episodes or not, but it's something that's been discussed pretty extensively on this show. Um, one guy who I was speaking with um, on, on an episode, his, his name is Stu. He's, he's been on several episodes. Um, But one thing he mentioned to me, and he's in like his mid to late 40s, and he says that the strength, potency of marijuana has become so much stronger over the course of like the last 15 or 20 years or so. 
and the that has an impact on people as well yeah you're right um the thing is one thing i mean anything can be abused and everything can be taken to moderation even food can be abused and give you harm but now these days when it comes to illicit drugs or street drugs or even uh stores or or markets where they do sell like a thc or marijuana or other components, other medications of that nature, uh, we really don't know what they're, if it's truly pure or if it's in lace with yeah. one another. Like, I've been mean, hearing on the street that meth now is being combined with MDMA, which is like ecstasy or molly pills. Mm-hmm. And now some dealers are selling heroin or even fentanyl as meth or combining with meth. And a lot of people, that's why a lot of people, when they, they use intravenously or through their vein, um, they die because of being given something without them knowing what it was entirely. Um, luckily, I and a few other people that I know, we we you know we weren't in that kind of uh, danger. But there's been a lot of that going around, and yeah. no one really knows how how pure, how or natural, or how organic it is now. Everything can be laced and sold to anybody and be told something. And if you don't have your own lab, which most of us don't, obviously, you know, we're all regular people. Some of us, there's a few that are not, but um, we can really, we take the word for it versus uh, experimenting and making sure it's okay. So, I mean, all I can say is like, be very careful. Uh, if you're going to do something, don't do it alone. You have someone you trust there with you because let's say you go into unresponsiveness, cardiac arrest, or anything, you need someone there to help you or walk you through it or call 911. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I agree with everything you just said. It's so scary these days, especially with the prevalence of fentanyl on the streets. Um, I, I know earlier you said that you now work primarily in like outpatient settings and um i i think you said like less critical care settings um but in your other experience how how many times had you seen someone who od'd accidentally on um you know fentanyl is is that something that you encountered yes i used to work for a detox center and inpatient care um primarily it's for patients who have alcohol they're there for alcoholism heroin abuse or opiate abuse in other words and benzodiazepine abuse uh, like i said the withdrawals are our withdrawal was very severe and they had to be taken with medication. but i had a few clients and um it didn't matter if we were watching them every five minutes one of them went to the bathroom we our protocol as nurses we were supposed to knock and go in we don't have to wait for, oh, mm-hmm. it was an okay. So we we found a patient who was eating the fentanyl little by little. Eventually, we found him in the bathroom with a needle in his arm. And oh, unresponsive. Okay. Yeah, that was, and he was only 19 years old. We did CPR. We did, we had an, uh, a, a defibrillator and we called him one. It was already too late. And we even used um, Narcan, and that was already, he was way beyond Narcan. His, his body was had so much um, saturation of fentanyl and opioids that Narcan was no longer enough. 
that's absolutely tragic. That's that's very powerful in terms of just showing how fucking dangerous um, that stuff is. Um, I, uh, I I'm sorry that you experienced that. I, I know it quote unquote comes with the territory of the type of work that you do, but that that still can't be easy. Oh, it's not, especially when you're young like that. Like, I was also worried that we had some, we had a very, very selective few of adolescents, 16 or 17, that would come to detox, but we only made certain exceptions and based on their criteria. But luckily, I never saw a kid die, but I also was an EMT before, and that's why I stopped being an EMT because we, I had a, uh, we had a call for a motor vehicle collision and there was casualties and Luckily, it was only adults, but I saw kids injured. I'm like, I cannot see a kid die. That's yeah. not, I cannot do that. So yeah. that's why I, I went to psych and addiction because, yeah, there is suicidal attempts. There are overdoses, but generally you get an overdose is unlikely instead of going into a call where kids can be dead or people are dead. That's heavy. So me finding a 19-year-old, and I was the one giving CPR, while they were calling one one and we were working as a team, it was not enough. And I felt like I failed that, that one person who needed me. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, um, my heart goes out to you. I, I think, I mean, you're, you're doing God's work. Um, so, so to speak. Um, and I, uh, I, I just don't know what else to say besides that your story really resonates with me and, you know, my, my heart, goes out to you for for doing everything that you could in that situation thank you i mean even you everyone in the world is doing what they can to unite with people like that's still incredible work it takes a lot to let someone in it takes a lot to just you know be in someone's life because that that connection or that interaction is so important especially in our time like when we're divided there's a lot of things going on that causes a lot of conflict a lot of um violence and a lot of that right now the, it's the most important thing even if I'm, I'm a nurse it doesn't disregard other people who are writing music for pope because they're they're as, as important as i am as everyone else is important um i believe that yes we can't save everybody but as long as we save one person uh, at least we're doing something right yeah that's that's a great outlook to have on it um, just really briefly, uh, since you've touched on it a couple of times, do, do you want to explain for the audience just um, a quick breakdown of why, for example, alcohol and benzo withdrawal is so dangerous even compared to like methamphetamine withdrawal? Because I feel like a lot of people don't really understand that. Sure, I can definitely. So Meth, as we know, is a psychostimulant. It makes you feel more than you do. It gives you that ability, that hyper energy of feeling. So when you withdraw from it, you're just calming down. You're literally slowing down. You, instead of starving yourself, because meth, what meth does, it suppresses hunger. Um, it makes you more, be more hungry. And meth makes you not sleepy, well, now you'll be sleepy and you'll be a little irritable because of the withdrawal, but it's not dangerous at all when you're coming down from meth or cocaine or any other psychostimulant. But for alcohol, opioids, and benzos, they're more of a sedative, 
depressant nature medic, uh, uh, substance. Alcohol also has rich in a lot of um, carbohydrates or sugars that can definitely, it's like having a sugar rush and then crashing down severely. But with alcohol, it drops everything down. It makes you groggy and makes you go to seizures because your brain is so overwhelmed with sugar and glucose that now without it, it's crashing down severely. So that's why alcoholism is very dangerous when you're withdrawing, especially if you've been drinking heavily or for years and you start getting shakes. The most serious thing is having a seizure yeah. or having, um, or even just drinking too much. Like your body's so dehydrated from all the sugar that it can be very dangerous. Um, and at benzos, they're, they help with anxiety. So that they definitely drop your, it severely sedates you. So when you're withdrawing, you're feeling everything at once. You're really feeling your anxiety. You're feeling everything you touch, everything of sound, everything of, of that nature. And then opioids, obviously we know that they're like painkillers, right? And painkillers, mm-hmm. they suppress your, your nervous system from feeling pain or sensation or anything. Uh, feeling so once you're off it you feel everything especially if you've been on it for years all those years of not feeling anything come all together and you feel like what's a little minor pain for us like if we have a paper cut to them it's like they got literally sliced the knife and so it's suppressants are very much more dangerous when you're withdrawing than they are for those who are stimulated Thank you for that insight. And you've provided so much awesome advice and perspective throughout this recording. Um, but I did want to ask you if you have any other pieces of advice that you'd like to throw out there in, in terms of either schizoaffective disorder, related mental health conditions, addiction, any, anything else that you think people should be aware of um, or any advice that you would have for them yes i do and my advice for people with schizoaffective or any psychotic feature uh, diagnosis don't be afraid of, of speaking up or talking to someone you trust if you have no one to trust uh, you have a lot of people to trust and you just don't want to alarm them go out and if your your instinct will tell you strangers if they're nice or if they're bad or if there's always going to be that one stranger that you can talk to it will give you unbiased advice and direction. Or even if you want to vent, they'll hear you out without giving you any advice. But the thing is, we keep everything inside because society suppresses a lot of our uh, imperfections or flaws. And especially in the stigma of mental health, we're afraid to be judged. We're afraid to be labeled. We're afraid to pretty much be put in a, in a group where it's seen as a minority. Um, the more you communicate it, the more you're more transparent with about your symptoms, the more help you can find, the more help you can go for, the more comfortable you'll be with yourself. The thing is how, for me, um, I didn't, I wasn't accepting of my diagnosis. I thought I was going to be like the, like the bad guys from Batman in, in Arkham Asylum, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, so I came to, I found out also that, you know, Batman who is my favorite Superhero, although he has no powers, but you know, he kicks ass. Um, he is, actually has schizophrenia. Um, some of the comics reveals that um, if you keep reading some of the comics and some of the background of Batman, he is also schizophrenic. So mm-hmm. that made me, that opened my eyes saying, people with mental health, there's the same thing as regular people, there's good and bad. 
where where it depends on the person where do you want to be you want to be the joker or you want to be batman it really takes it's you know we all hide our feelings we isolate we alienate ourselves that's when we know that we're going to a bad place because the more we internalize something and not open up and we go into a dark spot of, of black smoke we're goners we're going to fall into our own deceptions our own uh inconsistencies and our own fear and making us the self-fulfilling prophecy of how society sees sometimes mental health as oh you know school shooters or massive killers or serial killers we're not them yes they may not have a diagnosis but that's not you you're a person and your diagnosis is basically another part of you. It's not the entirety of who you are. That's so well said. And I, I love the metaphor. So what does your outlook on the future look like right now? Are you are you working toward a goal? Like what's keeping you going day to day right now? My, my goal is my family. I also... I'm part of the LGBTQ community. I'm gay. Um, and, you know, I would put a, a, a goal for me if I, by, well, I'm 35 or 36. I don't have a partner. I'm going to be a dad. I always wanted to be a dad. I'm going to have at least one or two kids. I don't care if I have to adopt or have a surrogate mother. But also, career-wise and educational, uh, my goal, I'm working to become a nurse practitioner. I cool. want to be a psych mental health psych, psych, uh, nurse practitioner so I can help other people not just be part of their non-medical therapeutic um, health team, but I can also be their prescriber. And some psychiatrists, they're just there, honestly, just to let you guys know, psychiatrists, they're not there to hear your problems. They're not here. They're not there to give you therapeutic advice. They're just there to make sure the medications are helping you with your medical and physical symptoms. And that's it. Um, mm -hmm. You need a therapist. A therapist is going to hear all your problems. You need that. You need those two people in your life. For me, I'm also a substance abuse counselor, ironically, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I is it ironic, though? I mean, you've got very, very important perspective in that area. True, but you know what? It's funny when you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, when you're actively in your addiction and you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm a substance abuse counselor. It's kind of funny, right? It's like the irony. <laughs> sure. So uh, for, that's what I want to do. I want to offer therapeutic advice as well as medic, uh, Medicaid or medication uh, treatment for my clients. So I can, they can have both in one. That's my long-term goal. That's beautiful. I love that. Well, we've been going for about an hour now. Um, just wanted to check in, ask if there's anything else you'd like to share. Um, do you, do you have anything that we haven't touched on that you, you wanted to bring up, um, during this recording? Yes. One thing that we all do, even you and I do it sometimes because, you know, we have experience. Don't self-diagnose yourself. Don't read every little thing online because you will definitely go crazy. Thank you for saying that. I, um, I agree wholeheartedly. A lot of the disorders that we talk about, um, especially on this show, they're extremely complex. And there's a reason why a doctor spends, you know, six plus years in, in school, in uh, medical school, learning about how to properly diagnose uh, those types of things. So thank you so much for bringing that up. I don't think anyone on the show has mentioned that before. Thank you.
No worries. And thank you for having me over. I, you're doing great work as well. So I want to thank you too for having me on your show. It, it was my first time actually doing this. So I was a little nervous, but thank you for having me on. Hey, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, really quickly, do you have any, uh, any projects, any social media, anything else that you'd like to plug for the audience? Sure. I'm, I just started doing a blog. Um, it's, I, it stands for Psychiatric Effective Professionals and Services. So for short, I call it PAPS. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a blog that I talk about my, my own experiences as well as I give um, inspiration. I use metaphors. I use all different topics that ha have to promote and, uh, mental health awareness, mental health advocacy, and that mental health does matter. Even if you're not diagnosed, your mental health is the most important thing because without it, you can't do your ADLs, which is like your, your activities of daily living. You can't talk to people. You can't go to work. You can't do anything without you checking in first inside. So that's what my, my blog's about. It's papsfornow.blogspot.com. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll definitely include that in the episode description as well, so people can find out more about Ouroboros's work. Um, thank you again for coming on. This, this was just such a great conversation, and we scheduled it um, in such a spur-of-the-moment fashion. I, I think we connected last night, and I'm so glad we were able to get you on this afternoon. So it, it was just an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and um, from the bottom of my heart, thanks. Thank you too, and I, I am I am grateful, and I'm also honored that you took the time to choose me for your show. And please keep doing your work that you're doing, and keep up keep up with yourself as well. You're doing great, um, and always keep the want to. So one thing my one of my friends said to me, well, my mentees, and when I was mentoring, said, if people are not there with you at your worst, they don't deserve to be in your life. So keep those who actually are there in the good and the bad. I really appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this latest installment of Bipolar Recorder. Isn't it nice at the end where the guests and myself just thank each other over and over again and provide mutual support? I love that. This conversation was great. I think Ouroboros really provided a lot of important perspective and was able to share their education and professional experience in a way that was very informative, certainly for me and I hope for you as well. Bipolar Recorder can be found on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I am on Twitter at HHKeegan. There's also BipolarRecorder.com if you're looking for some more information about the show. Something we've been talking more about lately is the hashtag Mental Health Chill Zone Twitter space that I regularly host. I try to do that at least a couple of times a week. Great conversations, very casual, unstructured, peer-led conversations related to mental health, coping, support, etc. If that's something that you're interested in joining, this public audio chat via Twitter, 
feel free to come by and say what up and share about your own experiences or just listen in to the conversations as they're going. All are welcome. So, thank you again for listening. I'll be back next time with some more interesting and amazing stories for you about the experiences of living with serious mental illness. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and have a wonderful day or night wherever you are. Thank you. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.